Well, there is a lot going on in the world around us, whether it's coronavirus or riots or racism. There's everywhere I go, everyone I talk to has these things on their mind. And I think it's important as Christians that we not just emotionally react to these things or turn on the favorite cable news network to tell us what to think about them, but that we would actually think about these things as Christians, think about these things from a biblical Christian perspective. And to help us with that endeavor today, I have asked our good friend, Pastor Warren Graff, pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on the program to help us think through these things. Pastor Graff, welcome back to Table Scraps. Yes, good morning. Hi, Evan. Good uh, well, to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, so uh, we have we have a, several topics I just want to run by you and, and, and get your thoughts uh, f- from a Christian perspective. Uh, and one of them, I think, is on, on the minds of a lot of Christians, as we have seen over the last several months, the uh, novel coronavirus uh, infection rates climb and even death tolls uh, go up. Uh, we've seen governments respond to try to protect the population uh, from this uh, coronavirus and the disease COVID-19 it causes. And in doing so, um, the, the government has, uh, I guess, uh, taken away rights of people or, or uh, ha- has restricted their freedoms to, to go about where they want in some cases, to go to church in some cases. And uh, some Christians are thinking, uh, well, th- this is really uh, intrusion of, of government because um, I should be able to go to church whenever I want, uh, even if doing so would put myself at risk. That's what the First Amendment guarantees. How how should a government respond to a situation like a pandemic? Yeah, that's uh, this is uh, really d- a difficult time to speak of these things, isn't it? Um, I think when we're, we may sometimes need to be careful with our language about rights, where we do want to recognize our rights, and as even we see Paul, the apostle in Scripture, using uh, his standing as a Roman citizen uh, to make an argument publicly and for his defense, etc. So it's right for us to say that the Lord has placed us as Americans under this constitutional government, and that does include uh, the Bill of Rights, for instance, and, and other things, um, heritage from the common law, uh, and, and all of that. So that's right for us to appeal to that, and we can rejoice in it to the extent that um, that, rec- that these rights are recognized, that the that the person is upheld. At the same time, though, the language we should be speaking here maybe should not be rights, but emergency. We do recognize even uh, even with a in the tradition of, of libertarian, uh, you know, coming from John Locke and everything, there can be a recognition of what is an emergency. Now that doesn't presume that this is rightly an emergency. That may be up for argument, but there is such thing as an emergency. In other words, if, for instance, there's a shootout with with gang members or something on my street. I think I would recognize that it is right for the police officer to order me to stay in my house until the until the shootout, let's say, is resolved. Now, under my rights, I would say no police officer should ever be able to tell me to stay in my house. I should be able to leave and go to the store or go to church whenever I want. And yet we realize that at the time of an emergency, there is this recognition that certain things may need to be done for the safety of innocent people. And and another example that I think has been online some, but uh, if Winston Churchill told all of London to turn off their lights at a certain hour of the evening, say 6 p.m., because of the German bombers coming, no no Englishman, I don't think, would say, no, I have my rights. You can't tell me when to turn the lights off in my house. Although under normal conditions... Surely he would say exactly that, and so would we. No one should be able to tell me when to turn the lights off in my house. But when the German bombers are presumed to be coming because of an emergency, no one's talking about rights. Everyone's talking about what is needed for the existential survival of that society, and that may be for everyone to turn their lights off. Now, all of that becomes arguable because someone might say that Churchill has misread the 
you know, the, the evidence of the war, the, the data that's coming in, and that maybe the lights don't really need to be turned off. But while that may be arguable, the principle is, should be, I think, assumed that there is such a thing as an emergency, and in an emergency, things may, things may be done that would not normally be done outside of that emergency. So, so to 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 acknowledge that um, reality that the the governing authority would have um, times of emergency to mm-hmm. act on behalf of the best interests of the of the citizens, um, the, the aspect that I think that we're seeing um, in our own day with the coronavirus um, is there existing some mistrust between the people and the government, um, and so yes. so. So that if there if there was a, a a virus going around that had like a ninety percent fatality rate, um, we probably uh, wouldn't wouldn't be questioning a lot of um, the orders being passed down by governors. Um, mm-hmm. But but when the citizen doesn't share the same level of cons- concern of the threat, um, or maybe maybe you know to use the analogy, the people doesn't tr- don't trust that uh, Churchill can obtain good information about coming bombers uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that where where should a uh, a citizen say well they're the ones in authority so it's their their job to assess the the course of action versus well they're doing a poor job or they have false motives uh, in acting regulations during emergency so so that's where I think we should bring up Romans 13 and other scriptures where it talks about the Christian is given to obey the governing authorities. And we can remember that when Paul would have written that, or when um, Peter also wrote words of that type, one, one of the Caesars that would have been in play would have been Nero, who was not known for making healthy decisions and was actually um, a terrible and brutal governor. Um, Caesar in, in his case. So we're not told to obey when we can determine that the governor of our state or of our land, nation, whatever, is making good, well-reasoned decisions. So that, that would, it would seem to me it would mean that in the case of, like, if we're talking about, say, Churchill telling everyone to turn their lights off so the German bombers can't, can't find the, uh, can't find London well, that it is possible that Churchill is making a poorly reasoned decision because he's using bad data. Maybe he picked it up from just rumors on the street. It's also possible he's making a deceitful decision that he knows there's no real threat, but he's doing it for political purposes. Or, of course, it's possible that he's using reasonable, good data, and he's making a reasonable decision. And I may disagree then with what he's saying, but as a Christian, I'm given to obey him. And in the political conversation, it could be that after the fact, as a Christian, I would want to use the, politi- the political conversation and the mechanisms to remove him. In other words, to run against him or to support a candidate running against him. And in that way, when we have these governors in our country who are making some, at times, maybe good, well-reasoned decisions that are painful but are needed, we can support them. Uh, We can support them politically and hope that they are able to retain their office and everything. But for the governors making poor decisions or maybe using emergency powers, not just for the safety and health of families, but to actually um, be tyrannical in some small way or great way, then we should look forward to using the political mechanism to address that. But that's different than disobedience. Is... And, and in that way, well, then to use other things like what's happened in Minneapolis um, with the death, the, the unjust death of a man at the hands of a police officer, I could go, I suppose, and address that by trying to kill a police officer myself, or I could use the political mechanisms 
first of all, as a Christian, I should be praying for the protection of every person, and, and including anyone who in the future might be like that that man, that, that no one be put to death unjustly. But I can also use the mechanism. In other words, in these cities, there is a healthy way to address this. It may not be easy, but a healthy way to address it, and that would be hold people accountable, hold the governors accountable. In the case of these cities, every city that's having protest against police brutality, there's an easy answer. Remove the mayor. Remove the police chief. I assume that the police chief, and I think in most cities, is appointed by the mayor and approved by the city council. Remove the mayor. Remove everyone on that city council. Everyone who voted for the, who approved that police chief. And get people in there who will run a police department in the way that then these people, these people want, want it to be run in their city. So there's a way to handle the complaint that would be for a Christian, because it's right for us Christians to use the political mechanisms for the benefit of our neighbors, so that if I know that I have a mayor who has not been responsibly appointing a police chief, for the benefit of my neighbor, maybe I would want to campaign against that mayor. Is there is there a time in which um, a, a Christian could engage in civil disobedience. I don't mean protest, but civil disobedience. If, yeah, civil disobedience, I'm not... Some people would call, for instance, what um, Martin Luther King Jr. did as civil disobedience. And if that's what civil disobedience means, then I would say the Christian can do it at all times. But the thing with Martin Luther King Jr. is, first of all, he was... He was very serious about nonviolence, no burning of buildings, no attack on innocent people. And he left himself subject to the Caesar. In other words, he was thrown into jail. Now, he should not have been. But, but the point being, he didn't go out there and say he's above the law and he will construct his own law and create his own his own uh, little refuge where everything runs the way that he wanted. So there are people we can look up to who did protest. They did have um, they did have these great massive demonstrations at times, and they did so in a way that embraced the life and the health of their neighbor. They made it clear that they were not about tearing down. And in that way, Martin Luther King Jr., you could say, did a great and necessary thing over against a great evil, that evil being um, segregation and, and the effects of segregation, the Jim Crow laws, uh, etc. If civil disobedience, though, means me going and blocking off freeways so that my neighbor cannot get to work to feed his family, then for a Christian to say, I think is, I think that I will sacrifice my neighbor's family's health and well-being for my political statement, it seems that that's a hard argument to make that that's out of love of neighbor. In, in some of the stories we're hearing from various jurisdictions where governors have release executive orders, say, um, uh, restricting or even uh, barring altogether the gathering of of uh, churches, uh, holding services for churches. And, 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 and some of the stories we're hearing from those jurisdictions, they look around and say, but, but it's okay, the liquor stores aren't shut down, you know, uh, marijuana shops mm-hmm. aren't shut down, things like this. That the, the Christian might look around and say, maybe conclude one of two things. Either it just reveals the value system of those in power, or um, that there may be uh, another agenda at play. That that the uh, so-called the so-called emergency is being used for an ulterior motive. Um, how how is how is a person supposed to discern um, such a situation to say? Um, th- th- this is a action of the government, which, though I might disagree with, according to Romans 13, I am to obey the governing authorities versus 
I think something's up here, and um, you know maybe maybe it would be time to engage in some of the civil disobedience you just spoke of. Yeah, I mean we're we're in a very difficult time for that, um, and that's where I I think it would be right to say, uh, you know, when this whole thing started, when we were trying to figure out what needed to be shut down and what didn't or whatever. In, in other words, you know, President Trump came out and shut down the airline flights from China. And then, um, I don't remember, but two weeks later, he also shut them down from from Europe. And so it's obvious that our CDC and our president and everyone was trying to, they were feeling around a little bit, trying to figure out how you shut down the transmission rate of this virus. And so when when all the restaurants were shut down and the sports bars and the churches, you know, we see a little flailing going on, but that's fine. Um, well, it's, it may not be fine, but in other words, it's understandable because no one has perfect knowledge, and governors and presidents should do what seems best with the data that they have for protecting their people. So if they're shutting down a sports bar and they're shutting down a church and telling everyone to stay home for two weeks or something as they as they try to, to get rid of this transmission rate, that that may be understandable, whether someone agrees with the way they're reading the data or not. It may be understandable. But then what you mentioned is a big problem of um, if a sports bar can open but not a church, then it does seem that the discernment of the governor is lacking, if not even malicious, toward the church. And that's where it would it would be right, and I think even using the way that Paul goes about things to, as Paul would say, to appeal to Caesar. In other words, take it to court and use the fairness doctrine, use the um, the equal treatment under the law. Why are say, 40 Christians getting together and congregating for equal treatment under law uh, different than 40 football fans congregating at the sports bar. Let's... So, yeah, yeah, we, we end up with difficult... How, how do you go about obedience to Caesar in, in difficult times like this? Right. Uh, let's let's turn now towards the issue of racism that seems to be um, at such center stage, I guess, uh, with the the nation's events. Um, for a Christian, where in Scripture do we go to to start thinking about the issue of race? Yeah, so <laughs> I think this is where we as Christians should be able to be helpful to our to our neighbor, to our society. Now, I don't. That doesn't say how we can be helpful in the conversation about how to go about it. But we can be helpful because this idea of race. And I don't know what you were taught in school. I know you're younger than I am, but I know that in, when I went to school, and this would have been in a public school, government-run school, we were taught of the three races, and it was um, Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and Negroid, according to the way. The, the textbook and the teachers gave it to us. So there's three great races. That's what we were taught. Now, there was not any talk of that um, several hundred years ago. Before the 1700s, people did not understand that. That, that, that. So this was a new, this idea of three races or races at all is is new in in world history. And the idea of a dominant race or a superior race, or however we want to speak of it, is very new in world history. So this is where there's always been slavery. I mean, go back and look at the time of um, Egypt having Moses and the Israelites in slavery. There's always been slavery. But slavery has not been race-based because there was no idea of race. So when you had a slave back in the time of Egypt or back in the time of the Greeks or Romans, what you had was a people, a city, a civilization, or something, a group of people that you had conquered. But you didn't conquer them because their skin color was different. You conquered them 
because they were the next city over or they were the next their king was threatening your king their altar to their to their Baal god was not um, as good as your altar to your Molech god let's say if you're outside of Israel so there's always been slavery but not always the idea of a superior race um, or, or racial slavery like we had now if you go and say well why then did America if everyone's always had slaves through not everyone but and slavery is so common through all of all generations of history as it is even in the the world today where there's slave markets in Africa and, and such and such as that um, if that's if that's the case then why in America this strange new thing of race-based slavery, a chattel slavery that is based on skin color. And again, I, I'm talking about chattel slavery here, not getting into some of the words of other types of slavery, which are really uh, not chattel slavery being slavery where you actually own another person, as opposed to a slavery that's like a seven-year indentured servant or something of that order. But with chattel slavery, why did America have a race-based slavery? And the, if you read, for instance, uh, Thomas Sowell, uh, an economist, and, and he is black, he says that what caused it was that in our founding documents, we had such ideas as all men are created equal. Now, since we have all men created equal, then if you own a black slave, how do we justify that? If all men are created equal and are to be treated equally under the law, how will it be justified to be able to own a black slave? And Thomas Sowell says that that's where we came up with this idea of calling a black person less than a white person so that slavery was now based on race, though it was not based on race before that. So it was a, it so was a up, if I can just yeah. make sure I understand what you're saying, mm -hmm. it, it, was a, it was a way to uh, justify what we have uh, in our founding documents. Uh, in other words, right. okay. Now there's, and by the way, there's different readings of that, but but then we end up with this language of um, that a black person is counted as three fifths of a citizen. Now that line is in the Constitution, not to, not specifically saying they're three fifths of a person, but it's saying that they're three fifths of a person for the purpose of counting the census for representation. Mm -hmm. But Sowell's point would be that that gives us this idea that. A black person is a human, but not quite, not really. They're, they're a, a sub-level of human. And that also, there's another um, economist who um, is with um, Brown University, Glenn Laurie, and he's the one who refused to sign on to the letter coming out of Brown University supporting BLM, Black Lives Matter. And, and he's done some serious thought about about our racial situation in America, and he doesn't he doesn't uh, say the same words as Thomas Sowell, but but he does talk about how this idea of skin color is an artificial an artificial construct. Well, let me just read a, a footnote of his. He gave a, a, a major lecture on this in, in uh, France back in, I don't remember, 2018 or something, uh, a couple years ago. And, and what Glenn Laurie says is a self-conscious awareness that the marks on one's body may convey profound significations to the others one encounters in society may be an impediment to one's psychological health, particularly in a place like the United States where, because of the need to justify chattel slavery in a nation self-consciously defining itself as, quote, the land of the liberty, the mark of blackness has, over the course of the last two centuries, come to be infused with a long-enduring derogatory signification. So the, the point is that this idea that I would look at an, another person and say, oh, that person's white. He's of the same race as I am. 
And then I would look at another and go, oh, that person's black. He is of an other race than I am. Is a modern idea in, in the last couple hundred years of history. It's an artificial idea, and it and it might be not terribly different than me looking at you and saying, and I don't remember what color your eyes are, but I'll I'll say that they're blue. Are they blue? They are blue. Okay. If I look at you and say, well, you have blue eyes, you're of the blue-eyed people, but I have brown eyes, I'm of the brown-eyed people, then you and I would both laugh at that. Mm-hmm. But that's not that's not qualitatively different than me looking at some other physical attribute of yours and in, in defining you as different than me. So when we look at Scripture and we look for the idea of race, we, we can look carefully and see that Scripture does not understand a category of race. There are a couple verses in Scripture, and I'll mention them here, but they use the word race in the English translation, and it depends on which English translation. But, for instance, in Zechariah 9.6, if you're reading New King James, it talks about a mixed race. Or if you're reading ESV, it's a mixed people. But the actual word is what is given in KJV, unfortunately. The actual word is bastard. It comes from the Hebrew word that it's mimetzar, which is for someone born of a forbidden union. It's an illegitimate child. Hmm. And so it's a verse then that is speaking, now speaking theologically, and that, that, that gets into a whole other thing. But, but the point being that we have it in our translations of it's a mixed race, but that idea was not possible to say. In the, in the Hebrew, that's not what the word is. It's talking about a person of illegitimate birth, of two people, let's say of the same race, if we're going to use that category, but they're not to be having sex anyway. In other words, they're not married. So later in, um, well, I was going to go to First Peter, but in Ezra we have the, a, the holy race, and that's in ESV and New American Standard, for instance. But then you look at what the Hebrew word for it is, and it's the word for seed. That's used all over the Old Testament. And so the New King James Version actually gives it at Ezra 9.2 as the holy seed. So there we, again, in some of the English translations, we have this idea of race, but it's not there in the Hebrew at all. Then... Last last verse to mention, because we don't want to go on all day with just pulling out um, mentions of, of these verses like this, but at 1 Peter 2, 9, we have that verse, which is, you are a chosen race. And that's the way it's given in ESV and New American Standard. You're a chosen race. In the NKJV, though, it's a chosen generation. It comes from the Greek word genos, which is usually for something like family or kind or something like that. It's, it's, it's what's generated. It's what's being given birth. So to get you are a chosen race in ESV already shows that we are thinking in ways of race that does not come from the Greek word that Peter wrote. And so if you look at in Acts chapter uh, seven, that same word genos is used for Joseph's family. In other words, those generated from the family of Joseph. In Acts 17, Paul at Athens talks about we are all God's offspring, and that's that same word, genos. We're all given our our generation, our, our, our offspring, um, our status as offspring from God. So, when we look at the way the Lord created us, I think what we can see here while we are in this what, 21st century in America and we have this idea of race and people like me, because of my age, we were taught of the three races, 
Um, I don't know if that's taught. I doubt that it's taught the same way now, but it's certainly taught the same way just in the public conversation, the the TV stories and and all that about um, uh, the racial conflict. And and we need racial um, reconciliation and everything's about race. And so even if it's not taught the same way now as it was to me when I was in school of the three races, it's still there in our language that we're to look at each other according to the outward presentation of skin color. But in Scripture, well, in, in you, you can say, how do, how do we get there? And, and I think we can say that we get there because we're looking at things from above. We're looking at, in other words, it's like we're putting all the population of the world in a big room, and then we're looking down from above, and we're trying to categorize them. And, oh, there's some people with dark skin over there. There's some people with light skin over there. And we can even go, and there's some people who speak this type of language set over there. There's people over. And so looking from above, we start with the wholeness of the population, and we divide it into categories. Scripture does it the opposite direction. Scripture does it by starting not above and categorizing you by which group you're in, but starting low, starting below, and categorizing you by who you're born from. This is my mom. This is my dad. So Cain and Abel are born from Adam and Eve. So Scripture is not looking at what race we are. It's looking at our genos. How were we generated? And it doesn't have a way, then, of saying that Cain was of less generation than Abel, or that uh, later generations after Noah, that the people with darker skin were of a different—they all came from Noah, Noah and his, and his family and such. And that's the way, then, that we, as Christians, should be speaking about this, where I should be concerned about my neighbor— because he is the neighbor the Lord has given me. Love your neighbor as yourself. Whether my neighbor has brown eyes or blue. And then when I see people being treated in an abusive way because of eye color or because of skin color, what, in my life of prayer, I should intercede to the Lord that justice is done. In my political life, my life in the political conversation where the Lord has placed me in a in a um, country where I can vote and I can what contribute to campaigns, etc., then I should be using my voice as a neighbor to protect my neighbor who may be being mistreated because of skin color. So as I was thinking about our conversation, one of the questions I was going to throw at you was, um, why is racism seeming, seemingly part of our concupiscence that we would favor those of our likeness and lean towards hatred of those who are not like us? But what I'm hearing you say is it's actually not. I mean, certainly hatred is part of our concupiscence, but it sounds like you're saying that the idea that we would uh, uh, divide those who are different from us based on race is more of a, a novel idea. It, it, it certainly is to the language that we see uh, of Scripture and and of its of its culture, but like I say, also of antiquity, where we don't see that we don't see that um, the Greeks were attacking you know such and such because they had a, the wrong skin color. We see that they were attacking them because of political reasons, because my king is stronger than yours, and we want your gold. Now, that, that, doesn't, justify, that doesn't make it good, obviously, but it does make a distinction that, that if I'm in Greece, we did not go down and attack Carthage because of skin color, and we wanted to um, prove that. It was more that we had the army to do it, and we're going to do it. Which is a terrible thing, but but, and then that's where you get into when Sparta was enslaving all the the cities around her. It was not because they were different skin color. 
it was because Sparta was operating from raw power. So one of the one of the I think buzzwords we're hearing a lot uh, in the media, news, social media, whatever it might be, is the phrase systemic racism. So um, when a uh, a man is um, you know murdered by a police officer, the issue isn't that that was a uh, maybe let's just for the sake of conversation assume that that was. Uh, because of race, that we wouldn't know the the heart or the intention of of the man, but but to, just for the sake of conversation, we would say that the the, the person killed another person because uh, a police officer killed another person because of race. That that the conversation about isn't that that there is a police officer who is racist, but the problem we're being told is that this is systemic racism. What have been your thoughts on on that kind of buzzword circling around? Uh, well, if you yeah, if you read uh, Glenn Laurie, who again he's he's a, a well-known economist from Brown University, so he, he's not a small name, and he will talk about the danger of using language like that, because what it does is it says to the young black man that you that you don't need to be concerned with responsibility for your own track in life. Because you're under systemic racism. In other words, you've already lost. And so, and, and he, he grew up on the south side of Chicago, according to his lecture that I read. I don't know. I've never been through Chicago in that way. I don't, but, but it's obvious that south side of Chicago is language that speaks of um, the area where uh, the, 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 the people are not well off. And, and they have, in that way, a a tough way to go for education and, and um, vocational opportunities and such, I guess. So he knows that world, and he's talking about the danger of systemic racism, the, the language of systemic racism, because the young black man or black woman, but um, if I remember right, he was using a, a black man as an example, needs to have this this responsibility about him uh, that where he has his own agency. His agency isn't given over to some systemic racism, but he's about the business of being productive in his own life. But with that, systemic racism, I have seen it used in two different ways, and one is maybe helpful and one maybe not. Well, one definitely not. One is helpful when it is systemic racism being used as a way of identifying an institutionalized racism. In other words, human institutions have been taken up to the purpose of racism. And this would be these concrete things like the Jim Crow laws, um, the things of of um, all, all the separation of black and white, where you have to go to either a black school or a white school, the things that happened in large parts of the South after the Civil War. So if that's what systemic racism is, this talking about this danger of not just the guy who lives out by himself and is a racist, he is a problem mostly to himself because he's depriving himself of understanding what it means to love your neighbor. But that's a different problem, that that isolated man out by himself who's a racist is a different problem than the institutionalized racism where the human institutions are taken up into it. And that's why things like segregation need to be knocked down and brought into shame. If that's what systemic uh, racism is referring to, then you go, that's, that's a good and necessary distinction. But now you see systemic racism being used in this uh, – it's not concrete. It's, it's very obtuse. It's very um, generalized and just saying that everyone is part of the systemic racism to such an extent that we don't even know it. Um, the way that maybe I am – I'm part of a systemic system that understands everything in math under a base 10 system, whether I know it or not. 
which might be a true statement because I spend zero time trying to figure out what it would be like if we were under a base 12 system of math. So if that, but when it comes to racism, then it's saying that it is so systemic that racism is there for all of us, even if we don't know it. And what that means then is it takes agency away from me so that I don't need to look at my neighbor and say, uh, what do I do out of love for my neighbor? How would my Lord have me be a servant to my neighbor to bring kindness and the gifts of the Lord to my neighbor? Because the agency's been taken away from me, and I'm now just acting under a systemic racism that I don't understand anyway. And if that, when it's being used that way, which is the way it seems to be in use currently, then those police officers in Minneapolis, they weren't acting individually doing things that were either right or wrong. Now, in that case, it was certainly wrong what we saw of that of, of that man being put to death like that. But they weren't acting as persons of their own agency. They were acting as persons of a collective that is under the systemic racism, which really means, then how do I throw them in jail anyway? So because I, they're just doing what's systemic. Right. And so, so the inability to make that distinction between... Um, acts of racism according to that's been institutionalized versus um, individuals who are who are acting as their own agents uh, the inability to make that distinction and just kind of putting everything under the category of so-called uh, systematic racism um, really uh, has as its um, result of saying there should be no system <laughs> that there should be no structure there should be no agency to serve the public because if after all all it can do is be racist well except they're using systemic in a way apart from a system of institutions they're using systemic in a way of the the emergent way that we all think i see so they're using it in a collectivized way so they're not they're not looking then so much at institutions but they're telling me that that in that in, in an emergent way that I can't even understand because of things my parents told me, because of things I saw on the TV when I was three years old, because of – in other words, they're not looking at human-created institutions and saying this one is wrong. It, it's doing an immoral thing. This institution is going around and putting up signs that says – a white person drinks from this fountain and a black person drinks from this fountain. That's, that is something that can be addressed concretely. That's a, that's a malicious institution. It must be removed. But they're saying that it's systemic, not in the way of institutions, but in the way of this emergent way that I've learned to think in ways that I don't even know. And in that way, they've taken agency away from me. So that... How can I be responsible, fully responsible, for not loving a neighbor when I never even had agency of whether to love a neighbor or not? It's just part of this systemic problem of what I've been put into in my class. But they're the ones who classified me in that. One of the one of the results we've seen going on um, that. I suppose had started with the death of George Floyd um, is you know the first of all the the, the protests and then I certainly make a distinction between uh, protests and then riots um, that, that there's rioting going on in a lot of our major cities um, in my home state of Oregon uh, Portland has has been in the news a lot for the last uh, sixty plus days. Uh, riders have been on the streets. Uh, Seattle, same thing. Many other uh, areas as well. I'm not sure if there has there been rioting in in downtown Albuquerque. Uh, not not like we've seen in some other cities, but yes, there's been um, some statues torn down. There's been graffiti. Uh, there were there there were a couple incidents like that. There's been times when people who work downtown cannot go to work because of roads being blocked off yeah. and things like that. And the mayor, the, the mayor has been very respectful um, of the rioters in that way. Huh. 
Well, I mean, it's 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 an interesting phenomenon that um, that we've always seen uh, times of protest, and then uh, t- those protests, in some cases, become unlawful. Uh, and in most of those cases, um, the unlawful protests, the uh, the riots, the chaos is uh, put to an end rather immediately by law enforcement. But in this case, uh, it, we're seeing it kind of uh, allowed to persist in many cases uh, or perhaps just persist because of the sheer numbers. Um, I just happened last night to come across a video that came across the suggested uh, YouTube, and I wanted to play the, the soundbite and get your response. This is from a, a video f- produced by PragerU where a, uh, a gentleman is just doing on the man on the street interviews of people in Portland during the riots, and um, wanted to wanted to play it. And hopefully, the audio comes through good enough for you to hear it. But just to get your response uh, to it, it's about a minute and a half. Sure. We haven't declared a revolutionary war. Is that what we need to do? I strongly feel like we do. Do you think chaos is a good tool in order to reshuffle the deck? It's become a useful tool. Chaos, that's a complete reboot. So do you think that organized chaos will work? Yep. Yes. Yes. Keyword, organized chaos. I think uh, it could be used as a tool. Should we be able to use that chaos to tear down the system and then to ultimately rebuild it? I believe so. Yeah. Is it time for us to end the American experiment and start all over again? Definitely. It's, we failed as as an American experiment needs to be addressed. Is it time to end the American experiment and then start all over again? I think that we have to burn it down. Do you think it's time to end the American experiment? Yes. Uh, yeah, it is time to end it. Do we need violence as a yes. tool? Yes. Yes. You gotta have violence. Do you think that violence is a legitimate tool in order to make change? There's different, there's four levels of protest. Looting and rioting is part of being protesting. So yes, I do agree that it needs to be there. Do you think that violence like that is a proper response? I think that response is an outcry of being silenced for way too long. Okay, so I'm not sure how well the audio came through for you, uh, Pastor Graf, but it, one of the, I don't want to get your reaction to it, but one of the things that seems very clear is that there is a completely different intention between protest and rioting. What, what are your thoughts on that clip? Well, yeah, I, unfortunately, I think it came through just fine. <laughs> I wish it hadn't, but um, I think we're seeing there the difference between, uh, you know, as I mentioned, Martin Luther King Jr. earlier, uh, who was of a different spirit than this? He was not tearing down. Uh, he was he was building up. Now, certain things needed to be torn down, such as um, well, blacks needed to be able to vote without being intimidated and things like that. But that was tearing down things that were against society. They're tearing. They're talking about tearing down destruction of things that that are in place that they cannot concretely say what the problem with them is. They, they have these generalizations of, of it's a bad system or whatever. And so what, what you're hearing there is the language, say, not of a Martin Luther King Jr., about a time, you know, where, where he has a dream, a time when, when the white and the black um, judge each other according to character, not according to skin color, and things like that. But you're seeing then this Marxist language of of tearing down so that we can get to the next level, so that we can get to this collectivization. And so what they're again what they're doing is looking at it of it's the institutions that need to be torn down. And they and when I say it's this Marxian language, that's where Karl Marx would speak of the institutions. And he would he would speak of the church. He would speak of the marriage of man and woman, and he would speak of family. And these are institutions which need to be torn down so that people can be brought into the collective, so that the individual will no longer be understood according to who he is, according to his family or his genos. To go back to that word in Scripture, our, our genos, our generation, our family, our kindred, we will no longer be understood according to that, but we will be understood according to 
the extent to which we are part of the collective. So everything's been shifted. Instead of authority coming from the family to the government, authority will now come from the government, which they understand in as the collective, to the person. So a person is only legitimate to the extent he's given legitimacy by the collective. Now, that's, that's Karl Marx, speaking of tearing down, that he says the family needs to be abrogated. If I can, just for some, a few words from the large catechism, and these would be words that would be most strongly rejected by Karl Marx and by these people in the streets. But when Luther is writing about the fourth commandment, so this is where we are to honor our father and our mother. So it's getting right to the root institutions of the marriage of man and woman, the institution of mother and father, the institution of family. And then from that, we get derived the government, which is important to know that the family and the person don't come, they don't get their authority from the government, but the government gets its authority from the person, from the family. So in the large catechism, Luther writes, in this commandment, to honor father and mother, of course, belongs a further statement about all kinds of obedience to persons in authority who have to command and to govern. For all authority flows and is born from the authority of parents. And then he goes on, where father's unable alone to educate his rebellious and irritable child, he uses a schoolmaster to teach the child, um, etc. You know, then it goes on to speaking of other other authorities like that. But this is this is the distinction that's at stake, is these rioters want the person, they want me to be subject to the collective, so that the authority, whatever authority I do or don't have, is what I've been given by the government. Whereas in the way we're shown how, what, Adam and Eve are created, how the family is created, and the institution of marriage and family and all that, we as Christians, we see it ordered the other way. The government's authority comes from the family. That's what's being fought about right now. So it it, it was uh, the election of 2016 that really opened my eyes to, um, I guess, the, the, the prominence of socialism um, as being put forward as a... Uh, viable idea in the political sphere in, in recent years. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically of uh, Bernie Sanders' run for presidency, or at least uh, I should say the Democratic um, nomination, uh, who is who has outspoken uh, what he calls a Democratic Socialist. And again, in the uh, uh, nomination run for the election of 2020, um, and so at least at least in my lifetime, this is the first time that we've seen an outspoken socialist say I'm you know, running for office and to be getting some pretty pretty good headway, a lot of supporters and money uh, to that end. Um, so we have we have that dynamic in the uh, election circle, and at the same time uh, we see uh, chaos and rioters using uh, language that is in line with uh, Marxist ideas. Um, is there a cause and effect here? Um, is it that perhaps our more socialist ideas are leaning towards Mar- Mar- Marxist ideology, or is it the other way around that uh, we've adopted these Marxist ideas and it must follow then socialism as the economic system? Well, I, I think we should speak of the, the Marxist ideas or Marxism and socialism are an identity. They are the same thing. So even Karl Marx, when he wrote the Communist Manifesto, we're taught in schools now that communism and socialism, that you can be a socialist without being a communist and all this kind of stuff, as if they're a different thing. But Karl Marx said that um, communism is socialism. He was clear on it. Uh, Stalin said, make no mistake about it, communism is socialism so that the USSR is the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Um, For that matter, then, you know, Hitler was anti-communist, but he was a socialist. So 
when these people are talking about socialism and when they're trying to distinguish, I'm a socialist but not a fascist, or I'm a socialist but not a communist, maybe the first question should be is say, when you call yourself a socialist, tell me what socialism is, define it. Because all socialism is, to speak of it economically, is the collectivist control or ownership of land, labor, and capital, the means of production. That's so, all it is. So if I could jump in real quick, the the, the label that's being applied to it now to make it more um, acceptable or palatable is democratic socialism, uh, as if that, that's a different brand than what you've heard of before. Right, which is which is a distinction without a difference. It, it, it sounds good. What, I'm not a nationalist socialist, but I'm a democratic socialist. But both, because it's socialism, think that the means of production belongs not to persons or families, but to the collective. So all you need to do is say, if, if you're a socialist, tell me what it means. And if they know what it means, they will say it's, it's government ownership, government control, or collectivist ownership of the means of production, land, labor, and capital. Whereas someone who is seeing the person being created in God's image and seeing the institution in a family and of marriage is able to see then that this man and woman get married in the reason that they go and they buy 20 acres of land, let's say, thinking of the older days when we were more agrarian, the reason they do that is to feed their children, to take care of their family. And if they can't go and buy 20 acres of land to feed their family, then they're not going to plant the corn for next year because the corn won't belong to them anyway. So socialism, it's it's as simple as that. They can call themselves a socialist or a communist or a fascist, fascism just simply being the Italian word for socialism. But if they think that the means of production, land, labor, and capital, are under the control of the collective, then that's then that's what we're talking about. And that that is what's being pushed then. That's why in this new language, we need to get rid of, not we as in you and, you and me, but in this new language, we need to get rid of the institution of the marriage of man and woman from which come the children, because that's the only way you get children, from which come the institution of the family. We need to get rid of all that so that every person is known according to their worth to the collective. And uh, finally, Pastor Graf, um, just in a, as a concluding thought, I was wondering if you could just speak pastorally to the listener. Uh, you know, many people are uh, finding themselves really in fear. Fear, be it the coronavirus, be it the uh, the, the political changes about us, or the rioting down the road. Uh, could you speak pastorally to the person who finds themselves in fear in these gray and latter days? Yes, thank you. That Because that's where we should be as Christians. There, there is much to fear around us. Like you say, the virus, um, the effects of the virus, the, the overloaded hospitals in some areas, the loss of jobs, uh, not to mention people wanting to tear down healthy institutions. Uh, so for the Christian, how, how do we find any respite? And that's where we can hear our Lord Jesus say, to fear and love God. And then when we fear and love God, that means we're not fearing other things. Because if I belong to God, then as Paul talks about in Romans 8, what what, what can separate me from the love of God in Christ? Not death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor affliction, nor anything else. So in fearing and loving God, I now have only one thing to fear, and I look at this one thing that I have to fear, which is God himself, and I see that he has nail prints in his hands for me, and he's looking at me and saying, fear not, and then look in the Gospels at how many times Jesus, who gave the commandment to fear and love God, and then to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus standing in front of people, and over and over again saying, fear not. Do not fear. So for us in our current culture uh, that we see around us with all these things seemingly be- 
becoming unhinged. We can know that the God that we fear is the God who took all this to the cross. He's not surprised by any of it. He was not surprised by the evil of Nero that some of the that, that the early church had to live under. He was not surprised by the evil of any other age or generation, by the way that sin and death had been brought into the world by other plagues, and um, the Black Plague, the Spanish flu, whatever. And so, although we feel maybe very disconcerted seeing all these things moving around us, and we feel even unsafe, we can know that we belong to this Lord who died for all of this, and however it is that this all ends, even if we end up in our in our country like the, um, the, the French Revolution, which we pray we don't, but even if we do, with that much blood in the streets, um, we still belong to this Lord, hmm. and that means we belong to life. That's great. Pastor Graf is a pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Pastor Graf, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you, Evan. Good to, good to speak with you. Hope things go great up in the, up in the great Northwest up there. That, that is our prayer. 